Good morning, everyone. My name is Britt. This is my wife, Haley, our daughters, Evan and Josie, and my mom, Maggie, over here. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent as we wait with Israel and wait with the church for Jesus to come again. We light this candle as a symbol of the Jesus to come and the love of God revealed in the crucifixion of Jesus foreseen by Zechariah. I will pour out a spirit of grace and mercy on David's house and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will look to me concerning the one whom they pierced. They will mourn over him like the mourning for an only child. They will mourn bitterly over him like the bitter mourning over the death of an oldest child. On that day, a fountain will open to cleanse the sin and impurity of David's house and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. May it remind us of your self-giving love for us and inspire us to love you, our neighbors, and even our enemies in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to take a few moments to reflect on God's love as the worship team shares some special music with us.
Amen, amen. Thank you, children. Let's give them a bigger hand than that. Good job, guys. I invite you to take a couple seconds and greet one another before we continue in the Word of God. Good morning, everyone. That was amazing. Thank you to parents for bringing kids early and to our kids ministry team and Mr. Jeff, who leads them in worship, our middle schoolers for helping get them on and off. I love those moments. This is, as we said just a little while ago, the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. For those of you who maybe are new to that word, Advent is just a word that we use to describe the season before Christmas. It's not a synonym for Christmas or an alternative word for Christmas. It describes this season of preparation that the church enters into before we actually celebrate the birth of Jesus. Advent itself comes from a Latin word meaning coming or arrival. But interestingly, for the people of God, Advent has always been a season of waiting, which is a kind of common image for us around the holiday season. That sometimes when we think about the holidays, the, one of the first images that comes to mind is that image of waiting, whether it's waiting for the last day of school before Christmas break, Or maybe those moments, if you're a parent or a grandparent, where you're waiting for your kids and grandkids to come home and you're sort of pacing in front of the front window and looking out and just waiting for them to arrive. Or those moments as a kid of just waiting to open presents. I have two older brothers that are nine and 10 years older than I am. And so as a kid, I remember these moments of being in elementary school and then being teenagers and just waiting for them to wake up. (laughs) Like, would you just get out of bed already? And being the exceptionally annoying kid that I was, I would do everything that I possibly could to disturb them, to say, come on, we've got to open in the presence, and they would throw things at me and go back to sleep. It was a really, you know, pleasant holiday memory. 
But we have these images of waiting, but the church waits in a really unique way. We join Israel. We enter back into space and time and spend time during this season waiting with Israel for the arrival of the Messiah, remembering sort of Israel's long-awaited king and those decades and generations of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. But we also join with the church and waiting for King Jesus to come again, recognizing that Jesus has, of course, come, and yet he has not yet come back. And we, as the people of God, actually live between these advents. We live in a space between. We know that Jesus has already come, and so salvation and the Spirit of God and new creation are already here. They're already present. There's already new, the kingdom of God is already breaking into the world. New creation is already burgeoning around us. And yet, Jesus has not yet come again. So we still live in a world where there is sorrow and there is pain and there is death and there is despair. And so we live in this tension of what theologians have called the already and the not yet. And Advent holds those things or brings those things together for us once again. Throughout this season, we have as a church been exploring that middle ground, what life is like in liminal space. And we've been doing so through both the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, not to be confused with the priest in the New Testament, as some have been known to confuse them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can watch my wife's sermon from last week. (laughs) And the traditional themes of Advent. We spent the first week talking about hope, and then about peace, last week about joy, and today we talk about love, that fourth candle that we just lit. Love is central to our theology as Christians, and it's the very core of our ethic as the people of God. First John 4, in describing God, simply says, God is love. And this is essentially who we believe God to be, that God, the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in his very essence love. And because God is love, and because God loves us, then our way of life as the people of God is a way of love. Jesus, when asked the question about what are the greatest commandments, what are the greatest instructions about how we are to live our life in this world, said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. People of God are meant to be a people of love because we serve a God who is love. But that claim for many of us, the claim that God is love, can seem a bit trite. The church has been proclaiming this for some 2,000 years. And for many, you grew up in homes where this was the common thing being said over and over and over again, that God is love. So sometimes the profound sense of that statement can actually get lost on us. But in the first century, this idea that God is love was unheard of among the ancient pantheons. There were gods and goddesses of love, like Aphrodite and Venus, but there were not gods who actually loved. 
These gods instead were deities who manipulated human desires and emotions and passions for their own ends. That yes, they were involved in what we consider to be the workings of human love, but only to use that to their own advantage. The gods could not in any way be described as love. They weren't even loving (laughs) The gods were just those that we were meant to serve in some way and hope that we don't get caught in their crosshairs. But then the people of God come around and claim that God is love. And that his love has actually been revealed to us. It's been shown to us. It's been made known to us in the person of Jesus. And so that if we want to know the God of love, and if we want to know the love of God, then we look to Jesus. If we want to know what love is, if we want to know what love looks like and sounds like and acts like, if we want to know what love sort of, how love works itself out, how love gets embodied, how love is expressed and demonstrated, then we look to Jesus. For Christians, love is never self-defined. Love is not what we say it is. Love is defined by the God who is revealed in Jesus. That's what love is. And so when we think in this middle of Advent, we have to then ask the question, well, what does Jesus' arrival reveal to us about the love of God? What does Jesus' arrival reveal to us about the God who is love? And I want to say just three brief things to us today about this before we come to the table. And the first one is this is that in the advent of Jesus, we see that God's love comes close to us. That God's love comes close. It draws near. 1 John 4 goes on to say, this is how the love of God is revealed to us, that God has sent his only son into the world. With the birth of Jesus, the God of love came near. With the birth of Jesus, the love of God was made known in full and became available or accessible in a new way, or at least understandable in a way that we could never understand it before. But this is quite difficult for us. It's difficult for us to actually wrap ourselves around the idea of a God who comes close because he loves us, a God who draws near because he loves us. We don't quite know sure how to wrap our minds, ourselves around that, and we certainly don't know how to let that wrap around us, how to let the love of God envelop every aspect of our lives. It's often easier for us to believe that love is unavailable to us that love is inaccessible in some way. Some of us grew up believing that love has to be earned in order to be accessed, or that love has to be pursued or chased down in order for it to be available. Some of us grew up in situations where those that we, who we wanted to love us or those we expected love from withheld it in some way or withdraw it suddenly if we just said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing. We've come to believe so many times that love is always beyond our reach or it's something that we can't grasp and hold on to, that is just too slippery. And because of that, we can begin to internalize that if that's how love is, then we must in some way be unworthy of it. 
that if love is inaccessible, if love is tricky, if love is hard, if love is distant, if love is never reciprocated, then there must be something wrong with us. But in Jesus, we see a God who comes close. In Jesus, we see a God who comes after. In Jesus, we see a God who is always moving toward us. And in Jesus, we see a God who's always going first, not waiting for us to take the first move, not waiting to see if we're going to behave in the right way, not waiting and sort of calculating and say, okay, now they've gotten to the place where they've earned a small expression of my love, but a God who is constantly saying, I'm coming after you because I love you, that I want you and I want to be with you. God, friends, is not moving away from you. God is not hiding from you. God is not repelled by you. God is not uninterested in you. God is not unimpressed by you. God is not bored with you. God is not distant from you. What the scriptures tell us is that God is love and that you and me are the object of his affection, that we are the ones that he loves. And because he loves us, he comes close in order to be with us. He comes close in order to be with you. St. Augustine of Hippo said it this way. He says, what is every love? Does it not consist of the will to become one with the object that it loves? This is the love of God revealed in Jesus. The will, the desire, the passion to become one with the people that he loves, to become one with the object of his affection and the objects of God's affection is you. You are the object of God's great affection. The second thing we see in the love of God revealed in Jesus is this, is that God's love always seeks our good. And this is what love does. It comes close that it might actually seek our good. First John goes on and says, this is how the love of God is revealed to us, that God has sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we can live through him. To bring us life, the love of God and the God of love has come close to us for us has come close for our good, has come close that we might have life. John 10.10 says that he came into the world that we might have life and have it abundant, have it full, have it to its deepest and truest and purest and most glorious sense that our life might be full. He came seeking our good. Thomas Aquinas said it this way, to love is to will the good of the other. God wills your good. This is God's desire for us revealed in Jesus to will our good. But again, this can be really hard for us to hold on to because some of us sit here today and we have moments or experiences in life when others who claim to love us came close to us. It was not for our good. It was anything but good. They were supposed to love us. They claimed to love us. They even made us to believe that they love us. 
And yet when they came close, we found out that it wasn't actually for our good. Some of our darkest moments as humans are when those who were supposed to love us or those who claimed to love us harmed us or betrayed us in the name of love in some way. What happens in those moments is we end up with not just a distorted sense of what love is, that happens, that somehow our idea and our definition and our understanding and our experience of love just gets twisted and broken and confused. But it's not just that. We end up with a distorted sense of ourself, a distorted sense of relationships and what family and friendship and romance and those things are supposed to be. And we end up even with a distorted sense of reality because those who claim to love us came near to us and it was not for our good. And so it's understandable in those moments to actually believe that God is against us. That if God is love and our experience with love is actually quite a negative thing, then actually God's love must in some way be against us as well. And many of us grew up in church environments or in homes or in schools where this is the way that it was portrayed to us. That God is actually against us in some way. And that God is sort of quick to anger. And God is quick to disappointment. And God is quick to rejection. But the scriptures reveal to us is a God who's completely different than that. A God who loves us, who draws close to us, that he might seek our good. Reveals to us a God who is fundamentally for us. He's for us. Now, that doesn't mean that he is for everything that we're for. (laughs) We get that confused sometimes. That to love me must be to be for everything that I'm for, but that's not actually the truth. Those that actually love us are going to be against things that are harmful and dangerous for us. They're going to be against the things that kill us. We're going to be against the things that actually deprive us of our humanity in the image of God that we were created. And because God loves us, he is actually against what harms us. He is against sin because of what sin does to us, the ones that he loves, and because of what sin does to the others that it impacts, those who he loves. And so God sets himself up against those things, not because he's against us, but because he loves us and seeks our good. And because he wants our good, he's going to come against anything that's not. So he comes against sin and evil and death. And he does so in a way that is most poignantly displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. The fullest expression of God's love for us is this, is that God's love actually suffers for us. 1 John 4.10 goes on and says, this is love. It's not that we loved God, not that we initiated, not that we had it all figured out, not that we sort of got it all together and said, God, look at our love for you. No, God's love is this, that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice that actually deals with our sins actually deals with the things that harm us and destroy us and keep us from him and from one another. The love of God 
is sacrificial and costly love. The God of love willingly gave up his life for our good. The love of God, the God of love, willingly suffered on behalf of the beloved. He willingly suffered because of the beloved. He willingly endured the pain of our unrequited love for him. The ways in which our love failed, but his love remains steadfast and true. And the prophet Zechariah gives us a vivid picture of this sacrifice in the Old Testament. Some of you were wondering if I was ever going to get to him. Well, you mentioned Zechariah, but where is he? But Zechariah, at the end of his book, was looking out into the far future again and seeing a day in the distance, kind of through whatever visions and ideas and things that he had. And he's looking into the future and the day when all of Jerusalem's enemies will be destroyed. And in the middle, there's an odd passage, as so happens with the prophets. You think you're tracking along, and then you're like, what? What are you talking about? And he says this, out of nowhere, Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour out a spirit of grace and mercy on David's house and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will look to me concerning the one whom they pierced. They will mourn over him like the mourning for an only child. They will mourn bitterly over him like the bitter mourning or the death of an oldest child. This is the way that they're going to grieve. And the grammar here is a little bit odd. It's unclear in the original language who is being pierced. Is it their long-awaited king? Is it God himself? Who is it that's being pierced? But somehow there is a figure that's coming in the midst of them and he gets pierced and they're going to look on God or they're going to look on the king, the one who they pierced, and they're going to grieve. Their hearts are going to be rent open, but rent open for the one that they just pierced. And the text goes on and starts to list all of the clans that are mourning. And then all of a sudden there's this turn in Zechariah 13 and says this in verse 1. On that day, the day in which this person is pierced, a fountain will open to cleanse the sin and impurity of David's house. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the picture sort of paints for us, if we're holding all these images together, that someone is pierced or punctured, but then also a fountain is opened up. And this fountain sort of comes out to cleanse God's people of their sin. It's almost if when this immediately happens, when a, this fatal stab wound is issued, that a fountain bursts open and water comes gushing out. And that water is meant to wash, to clean, to remove what actually separates people from God. And if you track the line down in Zechariah, he comes back to the same sort of image in Zechariah 14. He says, on that day in verse 8, running water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the Dead Sea, half of it to the Mediterranean, this will happen during the summer and the fall, year-round. Zechariah looks out and he sees this fountain flowing with living water. And it's pouring out year-round in every direction. Other prophets imagined this as a river of life 
It comes out of the temple in Jerusalem and flows in every direction. And as it runs, it removes all desolation. It turns wastelands into wildernesses. It turns deserts into blooming oases. It turns death into life. And the great hope that the people of God began to hold on to is that this day would come. There would be this great reversal, a great restoration, that actually the living water would break out in some way from God and cause everything to be put back right again. That even the things that seemed dead and lost and gone would suddenly be revived. And in John's gospel, he's talking about Jesus on the cross. In John 19, he says this, when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. However, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water burst out. It came running out of his side. And was like, what's going on here? John goes on to say these things happen to fulfill the scripture that they won't break any of his bones. In the second scripture, they will lick on the one whom they pierced. It's John's way of saying that in the crucifixion of Jesus, this image of Zachariah is coming true. That they pierced his side and outflowed blood and water. Blood for the sacrifice of sin, bringing about forgiveness and reconciliation, making it possible for actually us to be made right with God again and a fountain of living water to come out and restore and refresh and revive and bring life to the things that were dead. In Advent, this is what we celebrate. We celebrate that that fountain has actually already been opened. It has been opened because the God of love has been pierced. It's been opened and the love of God has been poured out. And it's now flowing in every direction year round. And it's coming close to you for your own good. The love of God has been poured out and is coming near to you for your own good. And as it comes, it brings forgiveness. It brings healing. It brings justice. It brings freedom. It brings reconciliation. It brings resurrection. It brings hope. It brings joy. It brings love. And the message of the scriptures of us living between two advents is that it's only just begun. The fountain has been opened but we only know the living water in part right now. The fountain is flowing out in every direction and it is coming to us. Jesus is here, but he will come again in full and we'll know all of these things to their depth. As Sarah comes to lead us to the table as the worship team comes up this morning, I wanna encourage us in this moment just to stop, maybe close your eyes. And I want you to hear today more than anything else that God is drawing close to you. God is continually drawing close to you. 
You may be sitting here believing that that's not true or there's all of these reasons that disqualify you from the love of God or to keep the love of God distant from you or that sort of push the love of God back. But what the scriptures remind us over and over again and what we see in the person of Jesus is that the love of God has come close. And the love of God is for us. He is not against you. He's not hiding from you or distant from you. He is for you. And he wants to be with you. And his love for you is so great that he's willing to suffer on our behalf. That the fountain of the living water might be poured out for us. And my hope this morning is that we come to the table and interestingly receive the blood of Christ. The image of the blood and water coming out sometimes reminds us of the sacraments. The water of baptism and the blood of Eucharist being poured out for us. The sacraments are a reminder for us of God's great love. That as you receive the body of Christ which has been given for you, the blood of Christ which has been shed for you, my prayer for each of us today is that we might surrender to the love of God. The love of God might be made known to us, be shown to us, put on display, and that we might be able, by God's grace, to surrender to it, to receive it today. In Jesus' name.